Hello and welcome to the AMP podcast. My name is Richard Cooper and I lead the markets product here at Ampere Analysis and I'll be your host for today. If you're new to the show, welcome. We hope you enjoy the episode. For context, Ampere Analysis is a data analytics firm specialising in the global entertainment industry. This podcast is all about bringing together expert voices from around the company to discuss the latest trends, research and insights in the media sector. In this episode, we have three guests who will be sharing their latest work with us. Joe Hall, Alice Thorpe and Peter Ingram. Let's begin by going around the table and having our guests introduce themselves. Hello, everyone. My name is Joe, and my work here at Ampere focuses on content tracking for video on-demand platforms and the evolving content strategies associated with them. Today, I'm excited to talk about my latest piece of research, which is looking at the wider effects of film and television awards within the industry. Hi, everyone. I'm Alice. I work on tracking the production of original content here at Ampere and looking at the slates of the likes of the major streamers, broadcasters, and especially the big studios. Um, Today, I'm going to be chatting about their movie slates specifically their movie releases last year and the ways in which they chose to release them. I'm Peter. I track content spend and revenues for major broadcasters and global streaming services. And today I'm going to be discussing some information relating to ad loads taken from tracking exercises carried out on the US ad-supported tiers of Disney Plus and Netflix. You are listening to the AMP podcast from Ampere Analysis. To learn more about Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com. Award season is now upon us. The Oscars are on the horizon and Netflix's BAFTA success still making headlines. It is clear that the movie and TV industry still sees the relevance of award ceremonies. However, they've been accused by some of being nothing more than industry vanity and have raised no small amount of controversy in recent past. So, Joe, what relevance do these award ceremonies have in the age of streaming? So in this period where there's a vast amount of content available for consumers to choose from, Having that distinction of being the best in the field, which could be for a specific genre, the best performance, or just the best overall, allows these titles to stand out. So the most obvious trend we kind of expect to see in awards is that highly awarded titles are critically well received. Whether or not the best title actually wins each year is quite subjective, and it's always a topic that's going to be fiercely debated. But certainly on the wider scale, we see this to be true. So if we use Ampere's critical rating score, which collates user review data from highly regarded rating websites, there's a really strong correlation between a high critical rating and a high number of award wins. So I looked at Ampere's latest wave of consumer data, which shows that award wins can be a driver for content viewing. And this is particularly strong in markets where audiences are more likely to rely on recommendations from their providers for content. So markets like Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and India, for example, favor awarded content much more. There's still an inherent bias in these award ceremonies towards Western content, which is certainly something that the major award shows have been accused of in the past. So markets where local content is extremely popular, such as China, they're going to be less interested in whether a piece of content won an award as the content they enjoy and the content that proves to be extremely popular in these markets isn't really well represented in this area. Okay, so what does that boost in popularity mean for a movie? Yes, if we look at films specifically, first of all, what we do see is that the interest in these events is cyclical. So a lot of these ceremonies occur at a very similar time of year in what's more commonly referred to as the awards season. And if we look at these global search trends, we can see that globally for films, there's one event that generates a much higher amount of interest than the others. And that's the one we've already mentioned, which is the Academy Awards or the Oscars. So if we use Ampere's popularity score, which tracks online engagements and allows us to look at 
which titles are seeing a higher amount of consumer interest. So I looked at all the titles that won an Academy Award for a specific year. And what I saw was that their average popularity score peaks within that winning month. So what the Academy Awards, and to a lesser extent, some of the other ceremonies are doing here, is it's pointing consumer attention directly at these films. So the publicity and the praise they're receiving from these events is effectively acting as a marketing campaign for these titles. So if we use the example of last year's Best Picture winner, which was Apple TV Plus's original film Coda, when it was initially released, it didn't resonate that well amongst global audiences. But the popularity data shows that when it got that Best Picture nomination in January, uh, the popularity was at the level it received on release. And when it went on to win in March, the popularity spiked. So in terms of the global interest, you're talking three or four times the amount it received on release. So what these nominations and wins can really encourage is audience to go watch a film regardless of how big it was upon its release. Big titles such as Avengers Endgame is always going to generate a lot of consumer interest, irrespective of the platform it appears on. So the awards aren't really going to impact those kind of movies' popularity. Are there any titles specifically that gain the most from an award or a nomination? But yeah, you're absolutely correct in saying that these large titles, which have these huge marketing campaigns pre-release, aren't really going to benefit as much from having this consumer attention turned onto them. The titles that benefit the most, however, are these lower budget, independent, or even international films that can be crowded out in the market where there's so much content available. The attention being turned onto these films by the Academy Awards or other ceremonies is far greater than can ever be achieved in a marketing campaign given the box office returns. So titles that win Best International Feature, Japan's Drive My Car last year, and Denmark's Another Round the year before, both saw a popularity score after winning. Perhaps the biggest success story, though, would be South Korea's Parasite, which was the first non-English language film to win the Best Picture back in 2020. So this win not only saw peak interest in Parasite, but it also had a larger effect on South Korean content globally. So we're already seeing that South Korean titles were increasing in popularity, but there's a marked increase in the amount of popularity these titles are receiving after Parasite's win. That's not to say that it's solely responsible for this rise, but it certainly opened up the idea to consumers that this is a film and television industry that they should be paying attention to. So as streaming markets mature and subscriber editions begin to stagnate, are awards going to become increasingly important to the SVODs? Yeah, so we're seeing in markets that subscriber counts, particularly for the more developed platforms, starting to plateau. So we know that these streaming services have been pushing for inclusion in these awards in the past, and they're hoping to get the wins to elevate them above the competition. Netflix has come close on a few occasions to winning the big Best Picture Award with Roma in 2018, and last year they were favourites to win with Power of the Dog, but eventually lost out to Apple. With economic challenges affecting the media market worldwide and inflation affecting consumer budgets, mitigating subscriber churn is key for these streaming services in markets where the growth is slowed. Having that credibility and that reputation of hosting and producing the best content is becoming increasingly important to help fight this. Winning an award on a global stage is a surefire way of ensuring that consumers are aware of your brand and your brand quality. There's something I'd expect to see a continuing focus on from streamers. So if I'm interested in award-winning catalogues, which of the streaming services should I be heading towards? Well, firstly, it depends on kind of where you are. So for us here in the UK, the older, more developed streaming platforms, which launched before the wave of new services in the last few years, so Netflix and Amazon Prime Video, they kind of stand out as having the most award-winning content. But if we look at the market that has the biggest subscribers in the US, we actually see that HBO Max has the highest amount of awarded content overall. And that's followed by Netflix and Amazon, so similar to the UK. What's really interesting, though, is how this awarded content on these platforms differs. So for HBO Max, we see it leading the market in terms of awarded films, many of which skew older. So it's leaning on its 
studio content from Warner Brothers, as well as the licensing deal it has with Criterion Channel. So Criterion Channel is a f- platform that focuses on premium, high-quality films, similar to something like Movie, and it helps consolidate HBO Max's brand as this premium content hub. Whereas Netflix, on the other hand, leads these three for TV series, and the majority of these are Netflix originals or exclusive, which kind of highlights the different approaches these platforms have taken. So you can see that the studio-backed platforms like HBO Max can lean on that older content Whereas platforms like Netflix and Apple TV Plus that are really focused on delivering originals, um, they're doing really well with their more recent ventures. And if you wanted to watch the films up for Best Picture this year, you'd need to subscribe to quite a lot of services. So you'd have Netflix for All Quiet on the Western Front, HBO Max for Banshees of Sharon, Paramount Plus for Top Gun Maverick, Peacock for Tar, and then Avatar The Way of Water presumably making its way to Disney Plus later this year. Right. Thanks, Joe. It looks like I'm going to have to make use of all my streaming subscriptions in order to keep up with the Oscars this year. Before most movie titles land on a streaming platform, the first time consumers get to watch them is during the time they're exclusively available at the cinema. This period of cinematic exclusivity, known as the theatrical window, has long been debated by the industry at large. However, with cinemas shot over the pandemic, studios had no option but to experiment with different release strategies. Now that the pandemic is more or less behind us and streaming's preeminence is assured, Alice, can you tell us what is the new normal for theatrical windows? Well, I'm not sure we've quite settled into a new normal as yet, but um, there's definitely a more of a settling down that we've been seeing. So as you say, during the pandemic, we pretty much saw the theatrical exclusivity window cut in half. So previously, we're looking at a window of around 90 days before a title could be uh, released to an SVOD platform. Nowadays, we're looking at something more like 45 days, thanks to the agreements that the studios made with exhibitors during the pandemic in order to bring those movie titles to their platforms quicker. So if we look at just the release slate for last year, the sort of domestic targeted release slate from the the four major studios who are most invested in their S4 platforms, so who have S4 platforms to send these titles to, just over 60% of theatrical exclusives, i.e. those films which opened just in theatres and couldn't be seen anywhere else, just over 60% of those ended up on a streaming platform in under 50 days. And if we look at those titles again as a whole, around 54% of those titles released to streaming within a very specific small window, i.e. between 40 and 50 days. So a lot of those SVOD invested studios really are making use of that shortened window, and they are tending to bring their films to streaming much quicker. But there's definitely been quite a bit of variation between the studios. And if we look at those films which released later than 50 days on SVOD, uh, there's quite a bit of variation and a quite a diverse sort of strategy going on uh, in terms of how they're choosing to release those titles. Okay, so are we seeing windowing strategies for these streaming services vary based on the type of content that they're releasing? Yes, so the the two ends of the spectrum, as it were, to, to simplify things, would be Disney and Universal. So at Disney, obviously, it's a hub for a lot of franchise content. And there's an impetus there for them to get that franchise content onto streaming services as soon as possible after theatrical release. So interestingly, Disney, out of the f- sort of four majors with those SVOD platforms, they're the only studio which has completely eschewed the idea of making them available early on premium VOD. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, as I say, we've got Universal, 
So their agreement with the exhibitors was that any of their films which released on the opening weekend and made less than 50 million would be eligible to be released for premium rental or purchase after 17 days. And if we look at actually the numbers in terms of the box office for Universal last year, that pretty much excluded only two of their titles. So I think Jurassic World and Minions, those kind of big franchise titles, everything else opened under 50 million, which meant they could push these titles to premium VOD earlier. And I think the advantage for them there is really that the the sort of mid-range titles, which made up the bulk of their slate, are perhaps more suited either to a sort of home viewing environment. So they're things like romance and it's also things like slightly more niche titles. So say more art house style things, the kind of thing which is targeted very much at award season, as Joe has just been saying. So in terms of using this premium VOD release strategy, Universal is able to effectively open up another revenue stream for its titles. So it doesn't appear that when a film is sort of successful in theatres and then goes on to premium VOD early, there's any kind of impact in terms of theatrical returns. And it actually can really just boost your returns, albeit in a far kind of smaller portion of what your revenue is going to be. But the kind of caveat to that is that the film has to be the- successful in theatres first. So other than those films with a, a PVOD strategy already in place, does the popularity of a movie affect the length of windows of movies coming from other studios? Yes, it does. And it's 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 an interesting one because there has always been this received wisdom within the industry that you need to get those films out and in front of the public as soon as possible after the theatrical release to capitalise on that sort of marketing buzz. Now, of course, if we take the most obvious example from last year, Top Gun Maverick, top grossing film around the world, hugely popular, that actually didn't make it to Paramount Plus for, I think, 209 days to be exact. But the thing there is really, if you look at the popularity numbers for the film, when it opened in theatres, Ampere's popularity data had it down as having a score of around 82, I think it was. So for our data, that's a really, that's a top percentile number. By the time it reached Paramount Plus, it had a score of 61. To put that in perspective, when Netflix's sequel to Knives Out, Glass Onion, opened on Netflix, as it were, it had a score of 64. So you can see the benefit that comes with a theatrical run for something which is really successful. And I think Paramount really took advantage of that and said, let's run with it. Let's keep it in theatres. Let's keep it on PVOD and keep it off streaming. And, you know, they saw benefits from that strategy. But again, it's it, you have to reach a certain ceiling of popularity in order to maintain that popularity over time. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case of what we see with these bigger film entries in the award space that what's actually more beneficial to these streamers is this sustained popularity. So a film like Top Gun Maverick, which is already proven to be consistently popular, where Paramount would benefit from if it on to win big is that each year when the award cycles returns, this film would re-enter the discussion around past winners. And whilst the film can prove to be perennially popular anyway, having a film like Top Gun Maverick up for best picture would maybe allow it to cement itself in film history and this way would help Paramount ensure that it's a title that's keeping that consistent popularity score. So Alice, you've mentioned the Glass Onion from Netflix. That rather famously was a Netflix release, which actually did have a theatrical window before it went on to the Netflix streaming service. Is this something which the traditional streamers are likely to benefit from? Yes, they do 
or they have in the past exploited this strategy for for certain types of benefits. So one is actually linked to what Joe's been talking about. So a limited run in theatres would qualify them for awards or recognition or nominations. However, that kind of theatrical run comes with a reduced risk. You're doing a limited run. You're not having to spend so much on marketing. And it also means that you're maybe getting a popularity boost down the road when eventually those nominations come out and indeed the ceremonies happen. In terms of the sort of value that the likes of Netflix perhaps saw last year in extending theatrical runs, it's a little more uncertain. But I think really last year, with the example that you gave, Glass Onion, the value really came with the experimentation itself. So extending the window for that film was a test really for Netflix to see, okay, if we extend this theatrical window longer and we get a bit more of that kind of theatrical buzz around a title, does that mean that we're going to see titles debuting with a kind of a higher viewership? Is it going to draw people to the platform? I personally think they perhaps didn't go quite far enough with that. Um, I think really looking at the data, what you really need to have that kind of outsized impact that a theatrical release can give is go wide with a film. And I think hedging your bets with a limited release, albeit an extended window, is perhaps not going to see, you're not perhaps not going to see the results that you think you might. But I think inevitably it's something you might see platforms doing more of in the future, especially in relation to Amazon, which I think is the interesting example here. Since the purchase of MGM, they have come out and said that they will invest a billion in theatrical releases through the kind of MGM brand or banner over the next few years. And I think really it's going to be interesting to see how they benefit from the sort of theatrical buzz given to those MGM titles, which will eventually end up on their platform and how Netflix might seek to compete with that. Well, thank you very much, Alice. It sounds like the streamers are going to do quite a lot over the course of the next few years to experiment with that theatrical window in order to to maximise their returns from movies. Now, from monetising content to monetising the spaces between the content. 2022 saw the launch of advertising-supported tiers from both Netflix and Disney+. But how have these shifts in strategy manifest for the platforms themselves, and how is it impacting on the consumer experience? Peter, the two streaming services you looked at in your report were Netflix and Disney+. As a consumer viewing content through these tiers, how does the experience differ from ad-free viewing, for example? As a difference between the ad-free tiers of each of the services, there are a number of differences. In the case of Netflix, for example, we see a high placement of ad loads on their film titles, with this being based on the title's length. So, for example, a two and a half hour long film might have 10 specific placements in which adverts can occur, of which only six might be utilized on a given viewing. This differs from Disney+, Plus, where in terms of the number of adverts shown on a title, this remains essentially flat at three one-minute ad breaks, which are scheduled to specific time points during a title, irrespective of length. So a title that's an hour and a half long will have about as much advertising as a title that exceeds three hours in length, whereas on Netflix, a title that's an hour and a half long will have less advertising than a title like The Irishman, for example, which has a three and a half hour long runtime and as such corresponds to about nine mid-roll adverts. So are there differences between the ad loads on Disney Plus and on Netflix? 
Yes. So looking at the overall average ads per hour, you typically see that on a Netflix film, this average is about three and a half minutes per hour for a a film title. Whereas on Disney Plus, you're looking at approximately just two minutes of adverts per hour. This essentially comes from the way that the ads are structured for Disney Plus in that irrespective of a piece of content's length, it will have three ad placements, whereas on Netflix, it'll have more placements. So in an average hour of viewing, it'll likely have more ad breaks with longer average ad minutes within those ad breaks as well. And are there more or less adverts being shown depending on the popularity of the content, or does that not really matter? So this is an interesting additional difference that there is between the services. So on Disney+, Plus, again, the ad placements are fairly routine. So for a historic title from Disney's back catalogue, it will typically have these same ad loads as a newer piece of content that's been added. On Netflix, there's a slightly different strategy. So in the case of their newest titles their new exclusive originals, so the likes of All Quiet on the Western Front, for example, there's typically only a pre-roll advert with no viewer interruption from adverts throughout the runtime of the title. Uh, This corresponds to new title on Netflix's popularity. Looking at Amazon's popularity score, these titles typically rank higher than some of the older, acquired, and broader catalogue titles of Netflix. It is indeed this title's popularity that might entice a new consumer to join the Netflix service. And once they have joined the service and have seen the newer titles with lower levels of advertising, it's likely that they will continue to use the service and be monetized more aggressively on the wider back catalogue of the service. Yeah, I think uh, All Quiet on the Western Front is a really interesting example there. You know, it's, it's been available on Netflix since late October, but you'd expect, given the reception it's getting in the awards, so it's just done incredibly well at the BAFTAs, and we'd probably expect it to pick up a few Oscars as well. That's a really good example of how Netflix is taking advantage of the marketing it's seeing from the awards. So if Netflix is using that strategy of keeping the ads low on popular titles, then you'd probably expect it to retain that low ad load until after the award season has concluded and perhaps beyond which I think it really shows how these streaming platforms can take advantage of this consumer attention and use that to draw subscribers to the platform. So essentially what you're saying is that Netflix are are kind of promoting a ad light experience for the kind of content that would drive consumers initially to their service. But then with the longer tail content, the content that tends to retain subscribers, they are making up for um, those relatively ad light popular shows on their uh, binge-worthy viewing. Is, is that right? It's interesting in the discussion of binge viewing related to these titles. Netflix, very much one of the services that began the binge viewing sort of culture around streaming content, has now introduced adverts into its titles. This is a, another difference that separates Netflix and Disney+. Plus. Disney, having previously had quite a lot of experience in the ad space, owning the Hulu service and also accounting for a large share of the ad-funded linear landscape in the US. This gives them something of an upper hand when it comes to the person of the two services. So Disney will already have established industry relationships and has formulated its own Disney ad server managing its advertising, whereas Netflix has partnered with the Microsoft-owned Xander to manage its advertising. Disney also has a great experience in the ad space in terms of understanding the 
acceptable ad loads for a given piece of content. And so it has greater understanding of what levels of advertising consumers can be subjected to before raising concerns. However, ultimately, overall, it is that both of the ad loads across the services are less than what they would be for a title on linear television, averaging 12, even 15 minutes per hour. Okay, now you've watched quite a lot of these these adverts. Do the ads feel targeted? And, and if so, who is advertising on these major streaming platforms? Targeted advertising on the services doesn't seem to have um, been effectively implemented just quite yet. Uh, Disney has announced that coming from April 2023, they're going to launch some of the digital targeting infrastructure of Hulu for Disney Plus to better allow them to target specific demographics of their use base. In terms of the profiles of the adverts being shown across the services, you can see through the analysis carried out at the beginning of Q1 2023, there is a large proportion of adverts being shown for banking and insurance companies coinciding with the US tax season. And so these campaigns are clearly targeted to try and capitalize on audiences who need the assistance of these external companies. You've also seen that the advertising on the services supports the broader commercial activities of their owners. So adverts on Disney+, Plus, in addition to more family-skewing brands such as Walmart and food delivery services such as DoorDash, was promoting adverts for Disney's upcoming films such as Ant-Man Quantumania and Disneyland Resorts. So this was, again, a way of using Disney Plus to further support Disney's other activities. The same is true of Netflix. As mentioned, Netflix's ad sales are managed by the Microsoft-owned Xander. And during the ad counting exercise, we saw a large portion of adverts for Microsoft products during the titles watched. So again, across both services, we are seeing some similarity in that both are being used to promote the other commercial activities of their owners. So do you think that these new ad tiers have been able to deliver for the advertisers themselves? I think it's quite a difficult question. We are still in the comparatively early stages for both of the platforms. At the end of 2022, Netflix did comment that they have been unable to reach the initial targets for audiences for content on their ad tier, and in some cases were forced to make the payments to advertisers. However, this may just be any issues that may um, subside over time as more people move towards the ad tier, possibly as a result of Netflix cracking down on its account sharing and being required to rejoin the service, albeit at a cheaper price point. Okay, so do you think that maybe Netflix and Disney are going to slowly increase their ad loads over time? I certainly think it's likely. Looking at other examples, perhaps not quite the same level, but newly launched AVOD services, an example being the likes of Pluto TV, which upon its initial launch had ad loads that just two months later had increased by approximately 50% across some of its TV titles. So I think it's certainly likely that as um, services continue to mature and the parent companies try to experiment more with what levels of advertising are acceptable on their content before consumer sentiment starts to sour, we'll see a lot more development of ad tiers for major streaming services. Thanks, Peter. As these services attract more subscribers to these lower-cost tiers, it'll be interesting to see how their differing strategies start to develop. 
As we mentioned during Joe's section, the Oscars are coming up soon, on the 13th of March to be precise, and there is an absolute smorgasbord of titles up for awards. Now, given that I'm sat here with three media analysts at the table, I am curious which movie do you all think is going to win Best Picture? Yeah, so this is something unsurprisingly I've been following quite closely during my research. Um, I think the film with the momentum at the moment, and I may be being slightly biased here, as it's probably my favourite film on the list, is Everything Everywhere All at Once. I think that sci-fi and fantasy films can be quite underrepresented genre in the award space, but it does always prove to be really popular with audiences. So I think it might be the year for it to grab the win. I'm going to go with Banshee's Vinisherin just because it's loaded with great performances. And also it distinguishes itself from some of the other sort of prestige movies for awards uh, this season in that it has quite a lot of humour and heart. And I think we've seen over the past year, audiences have been slightly less receptive towards maybe more serious projects. And I have a feeling that the uh, Oscars voters might be feeling the same way. I think I might take Toshiki to come in with a hot take, as the Academy has been overly used to prestige titles winning over the last couple of years. I think it's absolutely time that a bona fide blockbuster takes the top title. And so I'm putting my support behind Top Gun Maverick to win the best picture this year, especially seeing as Steven Spielberg did say that its lead, Tom Cruise, did save cinema earlier in 2023. That's quite an accolade. A marvellous set of selections there. So uh, given its success at the BAFTAs, I think that probably Netflix's All Quiet at the Western Front is the one that's going to be making the most noise. Well, that's all we have time for. Thank you very much to all of our guests for their time and for sharing their research with us today. We've heard from Joe about the importance and impact of awards, Alice about changes to movie windowing, and finally from Peter about ad load strategies of Netflix and Disney+. All the reports discussed today are available on Ampere's website. Do get in touch if you're interested in accessing any of this research. If you haven't already done so, make sure you're subscribed to the Amp podcast as well as our weekly newsletter. And for more on Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com or get in touch by emailing info at ampereanalysis.com. That's info at ampereanalysis.com. I'm Richard Cooper, and I've been your host for today. The producer of this episode was Rory Goodrick. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you very much for listening. Cheerio. Cheerio.